0: Have you ever sat down and wondered just how many riffs on George Orwell's 1984 might be out there in the world of literature, cinema, uh, say, video games? I would imagine it's quite a lot. Well, we're going to deliver one to you, at least second hand, through discussion. Uh, in this episode. I'm with the Hugonauts, who run a podcast on science fiction nominated for the Hugo Awards, and we'll be talking about a book that has nothing to do with the Hugo Awards, actually. Uh, It's a novella, it's Huang Fan's Zero, so he's a Taiwanese author uh, writing this one in the 80s, I believe, and it's a sort of a version of 1984, and it's in a set in a dystopia that is hard to really define, but I'm gonna say it's defined by the fact that it's Uh, It's a dystopia of the computer age. That's the technology that sort of defines the world and kind of runs the system. But it goes a lot deeper than that, and we'll get into that. So yeah, glad you've tuned in. Hope you'll enjoy the chat. But before we get to the chat, we're doing the news. The translated Chinese fiction news, which I lovingly call the Trichofic News. So there's five items this time. I'll try and speed through them. Uh, First thing, it's something you can read. It's by the author Cao Ko. It's up on Asymptote, a journal for translated lit and poetry. It's called The Wall Builder. I have not read it, but it's pretty short. It's a short story and it is about a guy way back sometime in historical China and he's building the wall. He's one of the workers on the Great Wall. So that's that. There's a link to that in the show notes in the news items section. Next one, also not massive news. It's a book I think I've mentioned before in the news segment, uh, Tan Shue's Mystery Train, the translation of news new book. That's now available for pre-order if you're in the States. Pretty exciting. Third news item. See, I'm really getting through them. It's younger related news. She's Tweeted that she's nearing the end, like the final penultimate, probably ultimate by now, chapter of a Chinese language novel that she's been writing. And uh, this one she's been writing for seven, it, well, it's, she's not been writing it, it's been tormenting her, she says, for seven plus years. So I guess uh, keep your eyes, no, don't keep your eyes on that, keep your ears peeled for more about that. Okay. Fourth of our five news items. This is for all you people who love to read academic essays. The SFRA Review, the Science Fiction, and I've forgotten what RA stands for, uh, journal, have published a paper by one Shi Liu, and it's called "Stories on Sexual Violence as Thought Experiments: Post 1990s Chinese Science Fiction as an Example." I guess the title is pretty self-explanatory. Some of the authors um, that are name-dropped in the the opening, we've got a uh, Han Song, Chen Chu Fan, Wu Chu, Zhao Hai Hong, Chu Hui, uh, all authors that I guess have, have dealt with sexual violence in their stories. So again, it's not something I've read, uh, I can't tell you what to expect, but I can tell you that's up online for free, links in the show notes. Okay, last news item, now this one is pretty damn inst- interesting. This is another thing that I've just linked to a, a tweet thread. It's by, uh, I guess, friend of the pod, Michael Cannings, one of the uh, publishers who runs cam press They published uh, The Fox Spirit at Blue Steel Mountain that we covered recently on the show. Uh, Michael has done a tweet thread about something kind of odd. He's noticed on Amazon. There's been a big push of like very sloppy-looking, uh, low-quality books. He's put in um, quote marks about Taiwan, or specifically like the Taiwan-China-U.S. relationship. A lot of them have uh, Nancy Pelosi in the titles because he's screenshotted some examples. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has just visited Taiwan at the time of recording this episode, so. Yeah, something funny is going on, like these books have uh, spelling mistakes in authors names, they look really like they've been slapped together, full of grammatical errors and, and what have you. And Michael's commented that, commented on that in his tweet thread, it just it seems curious, shall we say. Right, that's all my news items, like I said, I think I got through them quickly. So on to the discussion, you're going to hear me talking to the two Hugo Knots about Huang Fan's Zero. So on the show, we have the Huguenots.
1: First question: Who the hell are the Huguenots? Who are you guys? <laughs> uh, Brent, Brent and I are friends from high school who uh, both love to read science fiction. So we decided to make it a little more serious of a project, and we've just kind of uh, started the ball rolling, and it snowballed to where we are today, just making episodes about review and. Um, discussion about science fiction novels and short stories and we try to i guess we're trying to like introduce normalize science fiction a little bit and introduce uh more of the good stuff into the uh, zeitgeist and get people get people reading the best science fiction yeah and who are you who am i
2: <laughs> i'm still trying to figure that one out to be honest <laughs> i met i met cody for not
1: even saying like i'm cody ah. i do this but but that was great too <laughs> Uh, and and I I'm a uh, production audio professional I work in like film TV movies doing post-production and production sound on location sound Um, and so that's how we that's that's my job on the podcast I do all of our media and then we got Brent (laughs) yeah Um,
2: yeah this has been such a fun project and a great excuse to meet like lots of fun people talking with you I guess it's been great and listening to your stuff I'm so happy we got introduced but there's this like you know been reading sci-fi for so many years but doing this has like opened us up into this whole world of like other people who care so much about this you know there's not I feel like the the concentration of people who love sci-fi is a little too low to like meet people a lot in the real world day to day we're like oh I love this thing too but entering this world of like people who are so enthusiastic about this has been so so fun and such a good way to meet people who like you know, take this stuff kind of seriously and look at it for the great art it is. So anyway, yeah. And then for my part, I'm Brent Gaysford uh, and I uh, am a data scientist who works on uh, brain-computer interfaces. So yeah, that's me.
0: Right. And we owe it to, speaking of other people, we owe it to Keith, right? That we're all speaking? No, it's not Keith. Adam. Shit, it's Adam. All right, Adam. I mean, we, Adam McFerty. <laughs> Adam, uh, owe okay. it, it's to it's uh, It's to Adam that... It's because of adam that i know keith uh yeah so you guys you guys spoke with a former guest on the show um adam McMarchy, right
2: yeah we talked to him he came on to our show to talk about uh three body when we did our episode on three body problem and just he's been so great to talk with over sort of the lifetime of the show one of our uh you know the people who like you know emails us a lot and always comments to let us know what they think about the episodes it's been it's been wonderful get a chance to meet him so yeah it's awesome
0: yeah Adam's the best. Hi, Adam. <laughs> yeah, he's probably he probably is listening. So, hello, Adam. And Keith, if you're listening, I, I apologize. Um, <laughs> so I think that maybe gives it away, then, that we're not going to be talking about Three-Body Problem. In fact, we're not even going to be talking about uh, any sci-fi from mainland China. This is actually Taiwanese sci-fi we're going to be talking about. It's going to be, I think, the third time, or even fourth time I will have done Taiwanese sci-fi on the show. Something I never could have predicted having gone in, but um, anyway, this one is Zero by Huang Fan and full disclaimer, I did a Taiwan season a while back on the show and I wanted this um, novella to be in it and I actually couldn't find anyone. Uh, A lot of people said, oh you should do Huang Fan, put him in your Taiwan season. But then when I was looking for people who'd actually read the guy's stories, couldn't couldn't find anyone so we're getting to this one a little bit late but that i so yeah i'm just glad that you're you'd you'd like to talk about it i wanted to ask you guys um on that point what is your general experience or perspective on chinese language sci-fi or even just sci-fi from asia
1: uh i guess i guess i could start um we Don't know a lot about it. Like I was saying in the pre, you know, when we were chatting before, um, I've read monkey journey to the West, um, and some various other things here and there, but the, the only, um, Chinese or even, you know, Asian science fiction I've ever read is the three body problem trilogy. And it was definitely cool. And a different experience learning. I was also an English major, a lit major, um, and it was it was interesting experience reading um, something in translation from Chinese and trying to suss out like what what was a cultural difference and what was a what was a difference in terms of like literary style and then what was the difference in like the actual uh, writing ability. Um, and, and what was the translator and, and, as well? Yeah, and and what was. And what was the part of the translator um and it you know it's a very different cultural feel um as a novel uh and i i really enjoyed the experience three body has kind of stuck with me i think it does a lot of people like over time i think about it more and more and it applies to more and more lit i'm reading and just like everyday things it's really entered my brain (laughs) yeah
0: i was actually remembering something recently where i was looking through twitter and some Account. It was a it was a Hugo's account actually. Um, some Hugo's focused Twitter account had blocked me, an account I'd never interacted with. And I asked about that, and I think it was um, a, a show listener who told me, "Oh yeah, this account is blocking everyone who follows so and so other account." And my reply was, "Well, this is great. This is the three bodyification of Twitter: preemptive shielding from everyone else." And yet, yeah, without <laughs> having read that trilogy, I wouldn't be able to make that reference. Or frame it in that particular way (laughs) so i really do get what you mean there brent did you have any perspective you wanted to share there
2: um i would just say i think that i'm excited about what you're doing and i'm excited about the sort of the doors that three body has opened because you know i grew up i got into sci-fi because my grandfather was like a you know sci-fi fan and so that sort of went through my mom and then on to me so I was reading, you know, I grew up reading like the stuff my grandfather said was great. So I was reading like a lot of Heinlein and Asimov um you know when I was when I was really young. And just there's not a lot of stuff in translation and from what I understand there are also and you can say a lot more about this than than I, but I don't think there was a lot of I think sci-fi started in the east later than it started here, is that correct? Um essentially
0: yes. However, there was a really interesting period and i think it's the the late Qing they call it so the the end of the last chinese dynasty basically so the first decade of the 20 the last and first last decade of the 19th century first decade of the 20th century when a few chinese writers in inside china were having a go at writing sci-fi and there's um a book you can read on that called celestial empire i believe it's mm. let me consult with google so that i'm not misleading everyone Yes, Celestial Empire, uh, the emergence of Chinese science fiction by Nathaniel Isaacson. And that is uh, essentially just a sort of a close read, an overview of a a few of, I think all or most of those stories that exist. So for example, uh, there's a sci-fi sequel to one of China's four literary classics, The Dream of the Red Chamber, in which the main character is brought into future, I think it's future Shanghai or future Beijing or something. And he flies around on an amazing flying machine. Um, but then, as um, the century wore on, um, pol- sort of more secular realist politics dominated literature. So, you get nothing until the 30s. Then there's this book, Cat Country, uh, which I've covered on the pod, um, set at a time when China was really in dire straits. And it's about a Chinese man who travels to, I forget if it's the moon or, I guess it's Mars, not the moon. And it turns out that on Mars, there is this whole civilization of cats, but it's in the one particular cat country that he visits is in decline. And it's a great big metaphor for the China of the 30s. Mm. Um, But after that one outlier, there's nothing. Then comes the revolution and you get, I think in the 50s and 60s, some kind of Soviet style educational sci-fi for children, but nothing of really great literary merit, at least that I've heard of. Then in the 80s, you do get the first sort of we get zero wave, yeah. Although that's Taiwan, I don't really know if there's much. That's another a whole other story. I have no idea what Taiwanese right. sci-fi there was. Probably not that much because, as far as political freedom goes, after the Chinese Civil War, Taiwan and the PRC are actually weirdly similar in that they both sort of opened up in the 80s in their in their own ways. But yeah, they, in, from the 80s onwards, you get sort of the first emergences of uh, sci-fi in mainland China but as for like what the scene is in Taiwan I couldn't really say I guess it's a smaller it's a much smaller country so it's harder to say what the scene would be like if you ask me what's the Scottish uh, sci-fi scene I'd be like I don't know We're, there's only five million of us so <laughs> how, how much of a scene can there be versus like in America or, or uh, <laughs> England or, or Europe or something?
1: Right, population and also, like, where where the population is um, economically, yeah. too, of course. Like, they have the, the freedom to focus on the arts. So, it's, yeah, it's interesting to hear, though, that sort of
2: the floodgates basically started to open in the 80s. Because in the West, like, nothing broke through until three-body, right? And so I think now, like... The doors are open people are ready for for more and I think more is getting translated um plus we've got like Chinese American authors who've gotten quite famous obviously and are writing great stuff so anyway I'm um I'm excited to read more and this was a great excuse to read something that was fun and it felt like um it's interesting this book was from the 80s it felt like like western sci-fi from like the 20s or 30s like it's super Orwellian I know we're going to talk about that um but I think that reflects sort of what the, what life was like in Taiwan at the time. But yeah, it was really fun and interesting and it felt like a cultural experience as well. I think um, I've never been to East Asia. It's like one of my biggest, you know, I gotta gotta do some traveling there. It's the place in the world I've I've got to go. Um, But between this and Three Body, I feel like it just feels different, you know, Um, in a way that I'm excited to like actually go and experience and see how much like the literature is translating into like, I can see some patterns in, in in things a little bit that make me feel like, like uh, traveling there would be an elucidating experience. So anyway, yeah.
0: Yeah, I do think if you go to one of um, China's tier one cities, Shanghai, Beijing, um, Shenzhen, maybe, I wouldn't want to be too cartoonish and say they're sci-fi cities, but um, I think you will see the future arriving there in a way you won't see it arriving in, say most of the UK or if you know any of the UK or in the US like the example the example I would jump to first uh, that that offer that academic Nathaniel Isaacson I mentioned is really interested in his rail travel. China has an amazing fast rail network uh, here the town I'm in in, uh, in England Nutsford is actually was going to be a site where the UK's first fast rail network would have been built through but that's been like tabled for something like a decade now future is not arriving very quickly here but I think all of us know futures arrive the future, some form of the future is arriving out there in in China and of course it's probably true for a lot of a lot of East Asia maybe not Japan I guess Japan has something in common with the West and it's sort of um uh, what's the word in a bit of a limbo
1: hmm. yeah. Yeah, limbo's a good way of putting it. Yeah,
0: that's the. Thus ends the geopolitical analysis section of of the episode. <laughs>
1: I'll, I'll move us on. Do we
0: want to introduce the plot of of the story?
1: Yeah, Brent's your guy on that. He's our summary oh, man. Perfect. So you two, you two, take a whack at it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it's I would say this.
2: it's about. It's set in the I don't know. Near it's framed as the near-ish future, but the important invention that's occurred is like it's not clear what it is some kind of chemical energy eh. a thing got invented that replaced all energy needs as well as it seems to be able to like remotely trigger nuclear weapons um anyway so there's this thing that has solved all the world's energy problems and with the invention of that thing came the party that controlled it and the totalitarian state that took over the entire world. And it's mentioned in the first few pages casually that it committed mass genocide and like all of the Southern hemisphere basically is is gone. Um, and just like casually gets dropped in the first few pages and then you have to sort of wonder about that for quite a while before it gets revealed what's going on. Um, and yeah, and there's a young man who maybe doesn't feel entirely comfortable with this totalitarian system and is trying to figure out what's going on. and um, I don't know it gets pretty strange from there what how, how far should we take it i guess what else would you say about it
1: yeah i we we should have asked before we on our show we don't do spoilers do you do you just go for it or do you uh, i usually go
0: for it all right um, if if i'm if i'm getting a, bringing on an author or a translator who's recently brought a translation uh i do them a favor and don't spoil it but for me, this it's a novella. It's from a long time ago. We're about to say it yeah. follows a similar trajectory to 1984. Yeah. and I don't think it's <laughs> yeah. a spoiler to say how 1984
1: ends. They overthrow well, the government. It's great. Right. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One guy defeats the empire. I, I guess I can get,
0: drop a couple names. So our, our guy is called Shida. Maybe he's related to Xi Jinping of today. Who knows? Um, <laughs> and the magical device is called Nan Ning, um, but Nan Ning. I, I find that one interesting because that is that doesn't mean anything in English. So one might assume it, because it's got a Chinese name or seems to have a Chinese name, it's a Chinese invention. But we get hints later on that US orbital weapons could have been Nanning or be part of the Nan Ning system. Um, so I, I think it is worth saying that whoever has the organization or the movement or the group that's taking control, aren't, they're like a global elite. I think they're not pinned down to like Taiwan or anywhere. They're not necessarily pinned down to the U S although it's hinted the U S might've taken
1: a leading role there. The main guy, Max, Max Kristen is Swiss, yes. right? Or purportedly. So. Yeah. So
0: there's, there's a, and there are like definitely some strains of like, um how would i say this like euro slash germanic supremacy in there there's a lot of talk of how like we're i'm not um in, what's the word i'm not trying to put words onto the page that aren't there but it says like the lesser races or yeah, something. the inferior
2: races yeah the it's a very races. um uh strong you know, words. that's like nazi, <laughs> that's like nazi language yeah for sure
0: mm, yeah that is yeah, yeah that's eugenic fascist racist language and it's right in there but yeah the thing i wanted to say as a prc head is that the leading group aren't referred to as a party, uh, which is interesting, because certainly in China, in, in, in the PRC, the, the ruling group are the party. The party is almost synonymous with the, the
2: government. No one else has the power. Oh, that's interesting. And, Did yeah, that feel different I mean, to you? Because aren't they the committee? To me, that's all the same. As a Westerner, I'm like, ah, oh, the party, the committee, it's all the same thing. There's the guys who are in charge.
1: There's no connotation for yeah, us.
0: Yeah, a party would have an ideology and uh, jargon that goes with that ideology. So whether or not the Chinese government are Marxist, the, the Marxist language is part of how they communicate their ideas, um, often at great length and <laughs> poor concision. Um, and 80s Taiwan, I don't think ideology was quite a, such a big deal. Nationalism was, a, was the sort of government's binding binding um, tool, but the, it was the KMT. It was a one-party uh state. Whereas like, the whatever world we're in now, th- the idea of a party is sort of gone. It's a more faceless, I don't know what you call it, bureaucratic elite. Maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but I thought that was worth mentioning that there's no party like there is in 1984. There is a ruling organization, but they don't call themselves a party.
1: No, that's a nice, that's a nice, like connotation to add that we don't, I mean, I guess we do have it a little bit in the West, um, you know, like in America, Democratic Party, Republican Party, you wouldn't call those committees, but, um, it doesn't have as strong of a, like, um, subconscious connection as it does. Well, there's there. some in
0: unelected parts of your system that have been, um, making some noise recently. <laughs> <It's>, yep. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, I'll leave that one dangling. Yep. I don't think. Yeah, <sighs> I'm trying to think what else. What else in the plot is worth mentioning? I guess we could we could spell out what makes it similar to 1984. So we have this guy. He's dissatisfied. There, he has a creeping dissatisfaction that something's not quite right. A bit like that itch in your head that's described in the Matrix. The, the itch you can't scratch. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. you felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? He, um, he has a dream or some sort of strange experience that leads him to pick up a book written by a guy called Winston, and this is after he's had some conversations with a professor who sort of danced around saying anything really explicit, but has told him look, this society, especially its founding, is not quite what you think it is. Have you considered that some things are missing? And the, the, the book he picks up by this guy Winston, which is a direct allusion to the, the, the name of the main character in 1984, tells basically more of the origin story of this society that you described. That there was this weapon, Nan Ning, that used mass murder and wiping out something like 90% of the human population to set the whole thing up. And I guess from there, he becomes more and more uncomfortable. His superiors notice and they sort of send him through a process of like demotions, holidays, faraway postings to see if he can perk up. And he doesn't perk up. He gets more disillusioned. He's yearning more for something more human because it's a very... We haven't got into that, but it's a very uh, rationalistic, dehumanizing system that everyone is living under. And I guess I
2: won't outright spoil the ending, but um, he's hes heading down a dangerous road. I- yeah, and the committee uh, felt... So one of the things that I really... When I first picked this up to read it, you know, you suggested it. And I just started reading it. I didn't read anything about it. So I sort of assumed it was fairly modern. And so as I was reading, I was like, oh, this is a criticism of, you know, this is a Taiwanese person criticizing the Chinese Communist Party and their sort of totalitarian observation of everyone through digital media and the fact that, like, there's so there's so little room to have any free expression. And if you express anything in mainland China, there's a good chance the government is watching you because the government in the the committee, I guess, in this is so... It turns out they have everything under such a tight lens like the rebellion that he thinks that he's joining is in fact just uh an effort of the central committee to to expose these rebellious people so they can deal with them and so it, mm. it felt that way to me and then after i finished reading went back and read the introduction i was like oh my god i had no idea you know as a person who was born in the, the late 80s in the west i always heard like oh taiwan's you know is the the free democratic state um this was sort of an excuse for me to do a little wikipedia binge down the history of taiwan um to see oh my god this was uh it wasn't nice things were different yeah
0: <laughs> yeah no uh, so we were saying how reading three body problem changed our view of the world forever living in china changed my view of the world forever um opened my eyes up to all sorts of things so like i think i had known prior to going out there that during the cold war we had uh i guess i didn't know about taiwan but i and you okay, there was a North Korea and there's a South Korea, they went to war, so I guess one was on the Western side, so it must have been free, capitalist, and a US ally, and then the other one was not free, communist, and a Soviet Union ally. But actually, no, South Korea, it's the same deal. Uh, that was a right wing, authoritarian state until I think around the 80s as well, when it, uh, through the struggle of the people who lived there fighting for their own freedom. They turned it into a democracy. It was not through, you know, benevolent Uncle Sam that South Korea became democratic. And with Taiwan, it's a very similar story. the The West and the the led by the U.S. was happy for it to be a nationalistic right wing dictatorship because it was opposed to to communism. Basically, it was a counterweight
2: and no one flipping tells you that great. in school in the yeah, UK. Yeah, for sure. I hear that, but further but for the record, South Korea and Taiwan are are great like the bets the bets paid off in the long run. I don't know. I it's uh there's a, lo- there's a there's a part of me that wants to push back a little bit. I'm very glad that Korea is not all North Korea. You know what I mean? Like it's a, so much worse to live in North Korea.
0: For sure. But my my point is there I certainly wasn't told. Not that the duty of my school was to teach me this stuff, but that information did not reach me until I went all the way out there and took more of an interest
2: yeah. for sure yeah yeah
0: um, right keeping us moving along. Uh, I thought yeah I thought we could talk a bit more about the context the book came from and also the context of the author's life so the the edition we read this thing in was from the Columbia University Press who do a lot of really interesting stuff from Chinese and other Asian countries in translation. so it's an academic book. So, being an academic book, we have to have an academic intro uh, that tells you like what this author was doing. And surprise, surprise, he wasn't just a science fiction writer. He was like a high, highly regarded literary uh, author in Taiwan. Uh, I think at times the intro tells us he was like the guy in the literary scene, and he wrote in all sorts of different styles. In what you might call a bit of a, a case of unreliable marketing. This book, the book is called Zero, and it has a very sci-fi looking cover on the front, but the story we read is just the la- like the second half of the book. It's this novella, and before that we have, I think, three short stories, and they're all in really different styles. So, like, this was a guy that did lots of stuff and just had a bit of a sci-fi turn in his career. I think that's worth saying, because I didn't think it showed up very much in the story Zero, aside from, like, the I don't know, it felt like he didn't have an intricately planned out hard sci-fi story.
1: Yeah, I think it it almost felt like he he saw a lot about what 19 he just he felt like he loved 1984 and it had a lot of messages that meant something to him. So he wanted to make he wanted to take it into the modern, well the 80s, the modern day for him and um make a new more relevant version for for his life experience um and it's also interesting to me that you know we just did an episode uh on uh the machine stops by em forster which is a short story from 1909 that's super science fiction but uh em forster was famous for like room with the view a passage to india like these kind of classic british taught in schools novels and then he wrote this one dystopian science fiction story so maybe i don't know it's a thing among um the writers that at some point some of them just get interested in in telling um more science fiction like speculative history speculative future uh story and 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 thinking about something beyond um the kind of the more classic uh mundane literary fiction um uh, but it also it, it did surprise me and I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think about um like the actual writing style of of this story because it's it, it almost surprises me a little bit to learn that he's a literary author because I loved the story and I loved the plot and it kept me going along but it it felt like um, it felt like a young writer's like initial attempt almost at like the you know just kind of goes the characters don't have too much definition um, the the writing seemed kind of basic to me I guess is what i'm saying
0: yeah same it's definitely true that there's not many striking thoughts this this the the thought to me is more in the sort of the world i also kind Mm -hmm. of felt the translator um wasn't the best so this can be a problem in translated chinese fiction in general is that a lot of the places that are able to get funding to produce these books are academic publishers or even academic uh papers because they don't use a completely commercial model so, if the thing doesn't sell, and translated fiction often doesn't sell very well, doesn't matter. It doesn't have that commercial imperative. So, academic translators, if you were to stereotype them, they're great at translating for accuracy, but not necessarily for translating to create engaging fiction prose.
1: To translate the feel. Yeah.
0: And Chinese as a language yeah. is not like, say, French to English. They're very closely related. So, like, um, translating literally from French to English like a novel might produce fairly readable prose but chinese and english are so different you know aside from the fact that they're from different sides of the world and aren't related to each other one uses a character system one uses the alphabet um, so you, you, there needs to be some sort of creativity and interpretation to produce nice lively prose and i think it's no it's no wonder that a lot of the best selling stuff from chinese to english is translated by people who also write novels So 3D Body Problem is a great example of that because Ken Liu, who did two of those books, is an author himself. Mm -hmm. He knows how to write. So that means when he's rendering Chinese into English, he can make it read well. And I felt that there was quite a lot of awkward sentences in the book, and we can't blame that on the author. I would point the finger at the translator for that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay, cool. That's that's good to know. I never know when I'm reading some of this stuff because like you said, I've read a lot of... um, I think mostly it's like South American and Mexican authors, like a lot of stuff that's been translated from Spanish. And then I've tried to read some of those in original Spanish, like Vargas Llosa or um, Garcia Marquez. Um, And they, it translates really well and easily, like you said, because the languages are similar. And also there's like a cultural sharing Mm. that's like, oh, they're a little different here and here, but I can understand like family that like the family dynamic in latin america versus the family da- dynamic i'm used to is like it's not that steep of a bridge to cross um and so uh i'm all, yeah I'm, I'm always wondering with like three body and with zero like what what is translator what's not and yeah. i think
0: also for like you said culture is a thing the best tran- to me anyway the best translators from chinese to english have a foot in both cultures so like i said ken leo He's Chinese-American, so that's that's a big head start. Another translator who I think is really great is uh, Jeremy Tiang. He's Singaporean. Singapore is a country that has a foot in Chinese and, and Western culture. Not to say that um, you can't be, I don't know, say, Scottish with zero Chinese DNA and uh, not, not be good at the thing. But if you haven't lived there, okay. uh, at least for a while, and if you haven't spoken to lots of Chinese people and studied the culture, then... Like, how could you possibly be at the top tier for, for translating this stuff?
1: Yeah, even at, like, the level of, um, like, so much, there's so much connotation, right? Like, you, about party, just even that thought is, like, a, a, a high-level core concept that would, that's, like, okay, this means something different when he's writing party and than it might to you. So how do we translate that? Yeah,
0: and you could be the world's biggest brain genius, but if you just haven't happened to have been in the right place to get that understanding of the idea will never occur to you. It doesn't matter how smart you are. Totally.
1: Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: We could probably rag on about this for a while, but, um, (laughs) we could rag about anything for a while, right? (laughs) Last thing I'd say about the other stories in the book that's worth mentioning is that although they're very different, politics is a running theme. Um, I forgot the name of it, but the first story in that collection, it's apparently according to the intro acclaimed as being one of the first political, Uh, Really interesting political stories in Taiwan because I think I I I don't um listeners might want to correct me on this but as I understand it um, the sign of the sort of late period of Taiwan's uh, oh gosh what's the word martial like period of martial law authoritarian rule there were beginnings of free expression before the uh, switch over to democracy and I don't know if he was writing in that period or during the early democratic period. But that the story in this book Zero follows a guy who's getting involved in sort of I think liberal or lefty progressive dissenting politics, and he finds it quite frustrating. So the story critiques everyone on the spectrum, despite probably being a you know pro freedom at least in the sense that it's trying to write about politics. And you do get a similar there is a similar thing in Zero I think where um, even dissent against the system is this is dissatisfactory because what can it really do? So there's, I don't know, I wouldn't call it nihilism, mm-hmm. um, but there's a sort of a, um, a suspicion that it's all a bit uh, useless um, trying to trying to um, bring about a really fundamental change um, as an individual person. Because I think that's, that's the thing that's worth mentioning in Zero is that they get, when the guy tries teaming up with a group, uh, it's, it's rubbish, it, it, it does nothing, he's stuck on his own alienated and isolated
1: and he also doesn't really succeed right it's like a good like kind of realist lesson in in like you do need a group you can't you can't just lone wolf against the system um which we get a lot more in western lit right it's like especially in america like oh you can like one man can defeat the whole system um and it's not very realistic bend so i i also see a lot of the like um The kind of the push and pull here of of like individualism versus uh society and and groups um helping to overthrow tyranny um versus the individual trying but but you also are getting a little bit of like cognitive dissonance and zero um about there not really being a good answer for that um like it's not i don't think it's strongly pushing for like individualism nor is it strongly pushing for this kind of like utopian uh, ideal, either I guess, because the utopian ideal here is more authoritarian than it is uh, socialist. So yeah. that would be the maybe that would be his answer. Yeah,
0: I wonder if listeners are now who haven't read the story are now itching for us to tell them what sort of authoritarian regime it is, because we haven't said we've we've said yeah the <laughs> the origins are um are murderous and racist, uh, but we haven't said if it's a communist system, a nationalist system. So, like, how would you guys characterize the system that Shida is living under?
2: I would say it's, um, mm, I mean, the thing it reminds me most of is, like, Plato's, what Plato in his Republic says is the ideal society. It's, like, basically, like, the smartest people are in charge, and they are sort of self-appointed philosopher kings. Um, But then it's sort of taken to the nth degree in which they're also sort of committing genocide against anyone who they don't think belongs in their their in-group slowly you know there's the initial mass genocide and then sort of ongoing They're, they just keep doing that yeah
0: it's very interesting how it feeds into automation which is that's an ongoing trend where more and more people are no longer essential to the economy and i guess in our world they um they have to find somewhere else to something else to work in become more economically marginalized whereas in zero it's a bit more simple um, they get replaced by machines and then they get carted off somewhere or vaporized possibly they just get eliminated so the end the end it's quite you could say it's a, a lovely minimalist system where the end goal is to strip away everyone the system doesn't need and it's even hinted at that people with the, the, the capital working on their computers don't really need to be there because the computers are usually better at doing their tasks automatically as well.
1: Oh yeah. And I was just going to say there's, there's some like unreliability about, you know, you think we don't really get a, a wrapped up answer at the end as to like, who's really controlling things. Um, I don't want (laughs) to, you can spoil it if you want to, but I don't want to do it. Um, (laughs) But the like, we we don't really know. Um, I I think that's a, it's always such an interesting um, take I feel like it's not here. We kind of have an excuse for why and that there's some sort of explanation, but I feel like that the idea that like computers take over everyone's jobs uh, and and can take over their personalities and can take over running everything, it, it's kind of a appealing. Um, there's kind of an appealing reason reason here, but it, it always, whenever I read this in stories, it always makes me feel like, okay, but who wrote the programs and who's doing it? You know, like who's, there's gotta be, in, in this paradigm there's no kind of ai so someone has to be the person who's smart enough to make sure the computers run you know it, it so there was kind of a lack there of
0: for me i guess it's like a lot of old sci-fi some of the technology is eerily accurate to where we are today like people are able to pay by bleeping their wrist over uh, a little pay scanner and like here in the uk that's essentially how i pay for stuff Do it through my phone. I beat my phone in uh, in the PRC. It's more or less the same with a QR code. So like, that that is pretty much a spot-on prediction of where the tech was going. But yeah, on the other hand, no one's got smartphones. The internet doesn't really seem to be a thing. But on the other hand, there there is mentions of like I think there's mentions of like wireless technology. So like, some things aren't fleshed out, which is technology wise which is probably a good move by the author because if he tried to flesh him out we could we could be more clear-cut and say this guy was stupid He got it completely (laughs) wrong whereas like yeah the, the technology isn't really isn't spelled out here's a question could either of you be persuaded to live in this society
2: no absolutely not it's destroyed all the good things about human society um they've got bars and video games yeah, and like weird sex islands, but like no, they don't have any actual no one's doing any creative stuff. I don't know. The the all the things that I normally hate about dystopian worlds, I, you know, he successfully made me hate this one. The thing I love about the world is everybody trying to figure out what they're going to make of their lives. And in this like rigorous controlled society, it's 100% lost. So no, I'm out. I quit.
1: No sex islands for me. Um to point point of order, um it's a it's a sex uh the entire country of Brazil. (laughs) Which is a big country. (laughs) Not an island. I I don't know. I mean, I I also think no, but it's interesting to me um, to see... There's like the idea that we struggle to um, advance and progress as societies and come to a place where we're more comfortable and then we see fiction like this and it's like everyone's super comfortable... You don't have to think or struggle really, uh, and then you're still like, yeah, but I don't like that either. So you know, perhaps the purpose and the struggle a little bit, or the purpose in and in, in meaningful work um, that you are choosing um, for yourself and for le- and and learning um, from a place of comfort of uh material comfort of resources is maybe perhaps the more appropriate utopia where there's still an intellectual struggle and and spiritual struggle but not material
0: i think it's it's interesting what you mentioned about there being material comfort uh and that people don't need to think too much about like uh i don't know say politics they don't need to think about politics if you compare that with 1984 1984 is a much more totalitarian system in that everyone has to love Big Brother, uh, everyone's not allowed to forget about the nation, the nation's enemies, um, the ideology in whatever form it exists, the ideology, I forget what it's called, like English socialism or something, some some bullshit name. (laughs) Whereas you might say that zero has a little bit more in common with our neoliberal postmodern society in that it is a little bit like a consumer society you can go to the bar you can play a video game if you're at least if you're in the the, the wealthy central core uh, you're not obliged to engage in politics uh, although you can't it's fair to say <laughs> um so to me it kind of felt like a blend of 1984 and uh brave new world yeah if you guys have read that one totally. minus the drugs uh there's there's a, there are like weird sex orgies in brave new world but there's also happy pills whereas um they Zero's got the got, soma no yeah, so much. I don't think there's any happy pills in in um, zero, but there is the there is Brazil. So you guys mentioned that, which is like a corporate retreat for um, uh, white collar workers who are beginning to feel disillusioned. They ship them off to like a holiday resort where you get paired up with a, a host, a guide slash sex partner, I guess. And yeah, that that's a bit of the book that kind of woke me up a bit, because it, I, I thought it was going to be a completely sexless story, but um, it's actually that activity that helps wake up Shida, because at the end of it, uh, it becomes like a, a hookup. That his, his guide says, no, you, n- you need to forget about me. But of course, he goes back and he can't. And I seem to recall, I've not actually read 1984, I've only seen the film, but um, I believe a big part of the Winston's rebellion is that he dares to fall in love with a woman, and their love is actually really tied in with their uh, qu- at first quietly then more overtly sticking it uh sticking it to big brother correct whereas Shida, he's not sticking it to to his boss by falling in love it's more that he 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 was forced into having a fling when he really didn't want a fling he wanted something a bit more substantial
1: and it, and he has his his other girlfriend who's doesn't mm-hmm. really you know she's part of the society so he can't like talk to her about anything you know emotional or or about his rebellion and like what's going on inside him he just can hang out with her um but the yeah the it i it also bears mentioning i think that that it this the brazil kind of like sex vacation romp um is for the top tier guys. Remember that boss keeps telling him that he's like, Niagara falls is like a low tier vacation. You're going on a high tier one. So there still is like an element of the capitalism in, in whoever, you know, the performs higher at a, uh, better job gets to go on the good vacations and the other people don't get to go on vacation or they get to go on the worst vacations. So there's still an element of, uh, like the stratosphere of, socioeconomic class in the reward system Mm
0: -hmm. yeah there is some kind of a bizarre social mobility um you see people moving up and moving down but whether or not you move up or down seems to be largely about how much you buy into
2: buy into the whole system yeah it's like party loyalty right or committee loyalty i guess
1: which to me is very that's very 1984 that part of it is like it still has the core kind of it's a different way of looking at it but it has the core feel
0: yeah and i can kind of see that in the modern workplace how much enthusiasm do you project about how happy you are to be in your job and be in the office it's not like that gets you promoted but i'm sure it helps right i'll keep us moving along uh, i guess we've talked quite a lot about allusions to orwell we've talked about the uh, dystopia I'll ask you guys a question as the Huguenots, um, <laughs> would you put this thing in the runnings for a hugo award
2: well, so I guess let me say two things. One, I don't read that many novellas, and there's a whole Hugo category for novellas, so I can't mm. say t- to that. Right. Uh, I'm not an expert on on who's you know who's getting nominated for novellas. On the flip side, I would say I don't think it would get nominated today. Stylistically, mm. uh, it's we talked a little bit earlier about how it felt. Um, so there was a big change in sort of the 40s and 50s where they started. Uh, The idea became you shouldn't like reveal your world by just telling us how things work. You should do it like hidden through the exposition of the story. As things happen to the characters, you learn more about the world they live in and how it all works. Um, And that's like a very hard and fast rule now in sci-fi. Like it's not really allowed to be like a good sci-fi book if you don't do that. And, you know, Zero doesn't do that. Zero just like tells you how things work how it all works and you get like big chunks of exposition basically throughout the book that explain how things are working. So I think it's kind of like breaking what we've decided is like a cardinal rule of sci-fi, which doesn't mean it's not entertaining though. Um But yeah, I think
1: that's, that's sort of my like
2: whatever Hugo critique take on it.
1: I, I think, I think it's, yeah, kind of a cardinal rule of lit or film or, you know, any storytelling is like show don't show don't tell. Um, I think it just used to be a lot more common to have, you know, these big expository chunks, like you're saying. Um, I think it totally could win a retroactive. Like if they retroactively say, I, I feel like it totally would be something I could have seen winning in the eighties. Um, and it's still totally worth reading. And, um, I feel, I feel like, uh, if it were more in the, um, in the zeitgeist, people would have read it already and like no zero, um, as like a classic sci-fi, um, novella uh i agree with brent i think it does feel a little dated but also it's older so um you know if you read it with that framework um that mindset then you know like alongside reading um some older dystopian stuff i feel like it's totally valid and hangs hangs with it quite nicely um but yeah novella like a modern i'm trying to think of like a really great like a rival ted chang um Mm. you know that that obviously feels like a much more defined, like that's a much more modern science fiction story to me. I'm sorry, not Arrival, story, Stories of Your Life. <laughs> Arrival's the movie. Uh, yes. Stories of I Your I couldn't life. have forgiven yeah. myself if we'd hung up and I hadn't corrected that.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'd have to have like a very obviously edited um,
1: with like weird background noise, Stories <laughs> of Your Life. <laughs> yeah, the punch in what do you think about i mean you don't. i i know you're not maybe as maybe you're not as concerned with or tuned into the like award thing but you know what do you think of the story in general like
0: i guess i'm in the orbit enough to get blocked by a twitter account that i never interacted with <laughs> it's all about the hugos um easily done maybe um i so my, i learned about the hugos through my contact with chinese sci-fi i think i remember hearing at first that one of the things that helped three body breakthrough was some uh, a hugo award i think uh, and there's another um if you're if you look if you start looking into chinese translated chinese sci-fi one of the other texts that you will run into very quickly i think is a novelette it's described as uh, called folding beijing by hao Jingfang. i don't know if you guys have you guys heard of that one no yeah, so I don't, do you know, does the Hugos have a novelette category, or just novella, novel, short story? Just the three. Okay, so that probably won in the novel category, or the, sorry, the novella category, or maybe maybe short story. Um, And that is also kind of dystopia, it's more ambiguous. It's about a version of Beijing, we're not really told, like, who's running it per se, but we can assume it's just it's just the beijing municipality in the prc but it's an ex- it's a new kind of city where it is uh, set up so that it's always running but different there's three different tiers so there's an elite uh, tier of beijing where people uh, get x number of hours and they sort of run the high level uh, high class and political aspects of society uh, then they all go to sleep and middle uh, the middle class part of beijing unfolds and activates and it's all the white collar workers um younger professionals and then the people with the least number of hours are the underclass who do all the the shitty work and there's plenty of that in china uh and there's plenty of it in in the story and the story follows a guy who's not trying to overthrow the system but he's just on a mission to deliver a message up to the top tier so he's like crawling through the oh, that's machinery and super mixing, cool. yeah mixing with people he's never mixed with before and I think on one hand that got a prize because translated Chinese sci-fi I think was in vogue with the Hugos at the time. I believe um, the Sad Puppies controversy was going on around the time that Three Body and Folding Beijing uh, were doing well, so there was all this controversy over diversity. So perhaps it's a bit cynical but it's an opinion I've heard from a few people that that, that helped um, these these authors from outside. The US um, get the prize. But even if it did, I think uh, Folding Beijing is a great story because it it does something very new and different. It looks at politics uh, in China, but it doesn't look at it from the typical angle you get in the West, which is that China equals North Korea, China bad, uh, China is irredeemable, and the only interesting people are dissidents. And that gets quite tiresome quite fast. It's it's like reading in your comfort zone as a Westerner, I think. Um, yeah. So as as a story that works quite nicely as a story, I think it has a bit of info dumping exposition, but not too much. It's quite zoomed in on this one guy, and it has a real heart to it um, because it is, yeah, it points out the fact that there is a class, you know, a class structure. It works as a nice metaphor for not just China but pretty much everywhere in the world, uh, every developed and developing society. It's an interesting commentary on careers, cities. There's a lot to talk about uh, in regards to it, really. Um, and zero, I think, is similar, uh, but I think it's a little bit more flat. I think on my on my reread, zero was way more interesting. I started to think. I think Nan. I was paying more attention to the story about Nan and how strange and ambiguous that is, because you're only told that. I think it's not actually straightforward exposition as to what Nanning and the foundation of the new society is because all the info you get is secondhand not necessarily reliable you have to do some reading between the lines like you're told the guy who founded it is Swiss um, why you get some version of why he became important but it's never told never spelled out 100% you're told that there are your 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 I'm trying to say recordings of cities around the world being struck or having their nuclear nuclear weapons detonated by something in the sky with a US military or something or government logo on it is happening so to me like it was less simplistic than i thought first time around but i think the thing that would kill it for me might be the prose i don't think it reads that nicely hmm. i was noticing clunky sentences that um another another edit or another draft might have fixed so i think for that reason i would um I would give that one to Houching Fang and Ford and Bing, Beijing rather than Huang Fan and Zero. Hmm. That's my take. I know that was a long take, but that's no, that's
1: take. great. I am definitely going to read that. I love the idea of, um, what, what a simple thing like passing a message along can be, how it can be hampered and the kind of the conflicts that can arise from trying to, uh, navigate a very class tiered society just for something as simple as delivering a message. That sounds really, really interesting. Um, And I also agree. I think one of the most interesting things about Zero was the unreliable that we get kind of like three narratives for how this world was creative, and not one of them is reliable. Um, And you really Mm -hmm. never, you never really never have a solid understanding of the real history and the truth behind it. And it feels like that that feeling um, makes sense in the world that Zero takes place in. Like you would really and, never you could really yeah. never know what's behind everything maybe even the people at the top don't don't know because they edit their own history so much
0: and do we want to talk about how the x-files stole uh, all its ideas from this novella <laughs> the alien takeover of society
2: I've never seen the x-files so I didn't know that
0: oh right um yeah the the premise of the X files well this I think mm-hmm. it becomes more and more clear over time but the the big conspiracy in the x-files is that the aliens are Already here, there, and they're, they've infiltrated the U.S. and maybe other world governments um, by sinister means. And we're, we we meet a character who sort of basically poses that theory to Shida. He says, "Look, um, you've seen flying saucers in the sky, right?" Because and right at the start of the book, it's a very weird opening. We we meet she she parents rather than Shida and his dad his dad is watching these flying saucers fly about and i think we're kind of it seems it seems at that time that the flying saucers are being piloted by humans and there it's it's something that he wants his son to become become a flying saucer pilot and there's even a bit where his wife comes in and says um she says something like i've got a wonderful surprise for you it's what you've always dreamed of and she think in her mind it's that uh, he's always wanted a kid but really he's all his fantasies are about these flying saucers and he's he has to pretend that it's not when she tells him oh we've been um we've been allowed to have a child which by the way that to me that had to be an allusion to the one child policy in china the the sort of reg the reproductive uh control of reproductive freedoms but yeah so we're introduced to the flying saucers early on and it just seems like a throwaway thing and i was re- i had remembered it as a throwaway thing but i think later yeah late in the book um Sheeda meets a dissident who tells him, "Actually, the whole thing is uh, ancient aliens. Who like I think they seeded life on Earth. They tried to guide us. Um, they had become stranded on Earth, and they tried to guide us as a civilization to get to the point where we could build technology that could take them home. But they found they needed to intervene because it's it's often mentioned in the book that in the twentieth century everything goes to shit. We start ruining the planet." Nuclear bombing each other, and something needed to be changed. So, according to this theory, that's why the aliens um, set up Nan Ning and developed this much more micromanaging totalitarian society. And then, right at the end of the book, uh, Shida, Shida uh, believes this crazy theory, and it's never actually told to us whether the people in control really are aliens in human disguise or um, or not. Because they tell him, look, you've you've been brainwashed into this stupid theory about aliens. That's ridiculous. But Shida, right to the end, is thinking, you can't fool me. And on my first read, I, I think I was maybe trying to get through it a bit too quickly. I sort of dismissed it as another undeveloped idea by the author. But on my reread, I thought, wow, that's quite a frightening ambiguity. Because we are told that the current leader of the whole society hasn't been seen for like... 20 for decades so we don't really know how old he is
1: or they see him but he looks the same for over 30 years so he's never changing his appearance yeah yeah
0: yeah so that was i don't know it it worked better for me on a reread as like a sophisticated story and quite Mm. subtle
1: totally and and weirdly uh you know an early uplift tale right the uplifting of humanity right
0: yeah there's trans I don't know if it's transhumanist ideas, but we're told, I think by the authorities and by the dissidents that they are trying to like, um, create some perfect human, perfect society. So I, I don't know. I don't know so much about the history of sci-fi, but was that
1: a novel thing at the time? Um, uplift was, was fairly nascent. Um, and uplift being that the idea of like grafting, uh, intelligence and, um, faster evolution towards intelligence on, um, like other animal species and, you know, like lesser intelligent beings. Um, and that, I mean, David Brin, um, kind of took that to a new level with his uplift series in the eighties, um, 83, 84, 85. Um, and so that, yeah, it was kind of a nascent idea, but it's kind of cool to see that as like the, the description of, um, humanity starting. Like like the the creation myth retold as aliens crash-landed here <laughs> rather than anything else.
0: And so the, the final scene, and I guess we are going to spoilers, there's this big face on the screen that's sort of uh, berating Shida. And the ways that its facial expressions are described as sort of contorting from anger into a smile very quickly and then remaining very still, it just worked to me on so many levels. Is it that the guy has been completely dehumanised? He's a representation of this hyper-rational system? Is he some kind of transhuman figure who has ascended above all earthly concerns? Or is he literally just an alien disguised as a human or projecting a human face onto a screen? It worked right. for me way better than a lot of like I don't know, like the Sex Island chapter of the novel or like <laughs> him the more mundane stuff like him consoling his drunk friend. I was like, Whoa, this is um this is quite sinister.
2: Yeah, for sure. Because
1: it didn't
0: really feel sinister to me a lot of the time, it felt more sort of um, like I was supposed to read it as an, an allegory and not much else.
1: Yeah. Sinister and also kind of confusing. A great novella, because in a novel you'd you'd kind of expect some sort of you'd feel a little disappointed if you didn't have some sort of conclusion. Like, okay, this is what was behind it. Like some sort of answer. But novellas and short stories um, can end wonderfully with a ton of mystery still, um, and and that's the feel. You're, you're satisfied with that feeling. Like, oh, well, we just we just don't know. And I've experienced this thing.
0: I had the question here. It's a real nothing question. Because I think we've been talking about all this more or less since we started, but it was as a piece of speculative fiction. What can we analyze and interpret? Uh, is there anything we've not sort of tried to interpret ourselves yet that you guys that you guys jumped to as you were reading?
2: I don't think so. I think we've talked about all the big sort of ideas that jumped out at me. I don't know. What do you think, Cody? We missed anything?
1: Um, not not that I can think of right now I think we got we got most of it the the technology analysis what what actually is accurate what's not accurate and then also um the the political ramifications
0: I what one thing I did do to help me here was um I've taken all the bits in the ebook that I highlighted and I've um I've got them in front of me so um I'll just try and pick one out that might be interesting Interesting to, to go through. So here here's one. So he, he finds some metal. Wait, he's been given a, a some kind of metal item by the um his his guide, in quote marks from from the sex island, and it says uh, he lifted it and stroked the idol and thought of the word Christian. The old history professor had once mentioned the religion in class, saying that it had had the greatest influence of any religion in the history of human civilization. At its zenith, it counted half of the world's population among its faithful. It was hard to believe that humanity could worship something so amorphous. And even so, Christianity was unable to relieve the afflictions of humankind. By the end of the 20th century and the commencement of the Third Industrial Revolution, its partial opposition to science and progress were its downfall. I mean, I could analyze this a bit, but do you guys have any thoughts about that? Brent? what you got?
2: Um, yeah, (coughs) Mabel. Hey Mabel.
1: Mabel has some thoughts. Mabel, hush. Brent's dog. Okay, Mabel. Um. <laughs> um
2: I would say I think that um Mabel. Mabel, that was very rude. <laughs> sorry, there's a lady selling tamales out in the street outside. Right. Would you maybe also can hear. Um I would say that I think he's trying to sort of make a, a commentary on sort of the slow decline of of religion in like advanced economies. And, you know, it's interesting. We just see that sort of going two ways in many ways it feels like religion is is disappearing and in other ways it feels like it's like more and more powerful in our lives and like taking more and more control over over aspects of our society so um speak for yourself you
1: know uh, <laughs> well, at least secular in england over here <laughs> yeah. yeah speak for um, ourselves, indeed so-
2: yeah, I don't know. It, I th- I think that's kind of like uh, it kind of feels like a, a, a sci-fi author's take on religion, which is like, oh, well, once the science gets good enough, everybody's going to let that go for sure, right? It's like, well, I'm actually not sure that's what people are getting out of religion, but anyway, yeah. Right. I think so the, the thing I watched onto here. Oh, sorry, sorry, Cody.
1: Oh, I was just going to say real quickly. I see the, I think we see this in a lot of science fiction. There's this kind of like flopping back and forth balance of of um, which to me means tells me there should be some sort of balance that's just what I believe but the like w- sometimes in science fiction we see like okay we need to let go of we need to let go of the individual and spiritualism and um, religion and get more towards science and that's like the goal of a book or the the point of books trying to make and then sometimes we see the opposite which is like okay uh, organizing a completely secular society kills the human spirit and um, and we need more freedom um, in individual expression and you you, we get there's a ton of books that make really good points at both you know either end of the spectrum um and i think this one this one has a fairly good balance
0: yeah one thing i don't know so much about taiwan under the kmt uh was how secular or not it was because obviously uh, post-communist revolution china is an officially atheist state and until relatively well, I guess until the 80s, it wasn't great to be. Uh, well, yeah, religion wasn't was was a no go. It was a, it was the old society it was a no go in the PRC. But in Taiwan, I don't know if um, the the right wing government was secular and not interested in any you know challenge to its thought, its nationalistic thought that say Buddhism or Taoism might might pose. So I I profess ignorance there. I do think it's interesting that so the KMT's roots were much more sort of lefty. Uh, it was a broad church, broader church than the Communist Party, but it was um, it was the the first Chinese revolution that overthrew um, the last dynasty, the Qing, was you know broadly speaking, uh, secular, rational, liberal, or lefty through all the way through to like communist and anarchist. It was a broad church of that wing of politics. But sort of as as the decades wore on, and once it became the party of government, it became more right wing, more authoritarian, more conservative. It never implemented democracy, Uh, and then by the time it's on Taiwan, yeah, it's just a right wing dictatorship. So, but what it maybe does have as a through line is some kind of a a secularism. It's not like. um, it's not trying to implement like so. Let's say like um, Japan in World War Two. It's not. I don't think he was trying to implement a state religion. Its big thing was, um, as far as I'm aware, it's just pure pure nationalism. Anyway, changing tack slightly, the the phrase that I latched onto in, in that quote was third industrial revolution, and that's partly because on my own job, uh, in a. Magazine, a trade magazine for the pharmaceutical industry. I did an interview with a an expert technology expert on the industry 4.0 So the fourth industrial industrial revolution and I wanted to clarify before I um, wrote that thing up. Hang on What were the first three (laughs) because I didn't really know. Um, So the first first industrial revolution That's probably what you'd think. That's like uh, steam power, machines that can do the job of a first three people instead of one then five, so it's the, the you know the first sort of uh, replacement of people hand labor with machines, um, and the first factories, and then the second industrial revolution. That's Fordism, basically. That's the big production line factory. So it's um, even more standardization, bigger scale, and also the sort of um, worker-employer relationship that goes with it. The third industrial revolution is computers basically, the, the entrance of digital technology and IT. And then we're living in the fourth one right now, which is internet, smart devices, the internet of things, AI, uh, the next level of automation. And that, li- that line in th- this book actually made me think, yeah, this is interesting because it gives us a computerized society that it wasn't really quite able to see the world we live in now, the world of smartphones, so it's the sort of logic of computerization taken all the way, which is maybe would explain why the humanities are gone. So philosophy has gone, literature is gone, the uh, study of history, well it can't be completely gone, because the guy's got a history teacher. But all those things that make life worth living, that make us want to reject living in this this world, are gone, but also religion has gone. And I think, I don't know about you guys, but for me, being an educated, uh, somewhat left-leaning person, Who's interested in lit? I feel that religion is a funny one because I wouldn't really want to live in a hyper rationalistic world where the engineers are in control. My friends are engineers back home in Dundee, where I'm from, and I would never, <laughs> I'd never put them in charge of society. <laughs> um, so, although I've long since given up on any kind of organized religion, I was going to church the first twelve years of my life. Uh, I would, I feel that they're sort of in my camp because they're not maybe the humanities but that is a that is culture that's human culture so i don't feel like they're an uh, enemy either i feel like they're probably closer to what uh, i'm educated in than my friends with their engineering degrees
1: yeah i think that's kind of what i was talking about with the balance earlier is of like i think most science fiction authors would like just based on my readings of so many books are kind of like yeah we should we should try for some sort of balance between the two because obviously none of us, we don't want to crush our spiritual existential quest um, and admitting we don't know things um, and, and the exploration of like the human spirit, but we also don't um, want to be ruled by, um, you know, non fact based religious doctrine.
0: Yeah. You wouldn't want them in charge either. Yeah. A a funny thing I noticed um, on my job is that um, a, a big part of it is I do an interview I feed the interview into an AI, um, a voice-to-text AI, so it produces a transcript. I edit the transcript into a QA and a article. So a lot of the corporate speak I have to translate into what I think is good grammar, good English. And Google, I, I do everything in Google Docs, and Google Docs will often help me. It'll put the, the grammar underline if there's weird grammar. And one thing Google Docs does not like is when people say the science, You if you, mm. put, if you say follow the science google will say no <laughs> the science is not a thing you have to say follow scientific procedures it almost uh,
2: sounds religious right yeah.
0: yeah 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 it is its own doctrine totally yeah and i think t- t- to the credit of um the the evil rulers of zero it does seem like a fairly rational society quite rationally organized except for the fact that the work seems to be there as a means to control for control it's never really clear what purpose most people are serving in their jobs. Like what exactly it like she does seems to be working at the Bureau of bureaucracy. What he's actually doing is irrelevant. The point is he's in his desk not causing trouble for eight hours of the day. Yeah, for sure.
2: I think the thing that just so like so fundamentally or to me about their society is um, yeah, exactly. The point about you're making about it. like, they feel like it's rational, but I think my basic worldview is like, who are you to say what the right thing is? And this is just like the committee of people who've decided they know the way the world should be and are like setting out to make that happen. And they don't care, if, you know, they're perfectly happy to kill like the majority of the population to make that happen. Obviously, they're taking it to the umpteenth degree, but just the basic fundamental underpinning of that. That's like, oh, we've got it all figured out. What's rational and what's right aren't always the same.
0: Yeah, who's to say? I had an incident. An incident? That makes it sound a bit dire. There was an exchange at work recently where my colleague uh, found a paper that showed up in his inbox about a scientist who was studying uh, the heads of woodpeckers to find out whether they were more like a rigid hammer or a sponge. And a guy, (laughs) I hope he's not listening, but a guy from marketing looked at that and said, huh? People are actually spending their, their working lives studying these things? But what's the ROI on that? And I was like, why does everything need to have an ROI, man? <laughs> not everything can be quantified. And that's why reason you need more than reason, because reason is it may be rational, but it doesn't encompass what we're on the planet for.
1: Or perhaps you can corporatize you could say there's a spiritual ROI or an existential ROI like <laughs> to it. That's yeah. not quantifiable.
0: I said to him, Not everything can be measured in numbers, and he said, but it doesn't sound like much fun. And I, I stopped myself there, but I was like, okay, that's your binary money and fun. You'd fit in quite nicely in, um, yeah, in zero or, um, or, um, uh, brave new world. If that's your binary, but yeah. Yeah.
1: Or Las Vegas.
0: Yeah. Well, there is spirit in Las Vegas. There's lots of chapels, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, and there's, that's true. there's humanity. There's a lot of humanity as well. Um, mm-hmm. lots of them. Yeah. I'm sorry, I took it over, but I have nothing to... That was great. I like the woodpecker. (laughs) I got
2: to jump in like 15 minutes. Just okay. heads up. Right.
0: In that case, I'll speed us along. Um, I'll just take us to the miscellaneous section. I think we've had a pretty good chat about the the big ideas in the book. So um, the first question or topic in the miscellaneous section is the Chinese word of the day. And usually I fob that off to my guest, who is usually fluent in Chinese, which I'm not. But today, it's on me. So <laughs> uh, my word is uh, Li. It's, so Chinese is a very homo- homophonic language. So there, because it has tones, uh, there are lots of different Li's. This one is the... Oh, this is the tone I can do the most easiest, uh, easily. This is the third tone, which goes down then up. So this would be Li. And this Li means reason. So you can probably see why I've picked it. Um, when you when i popped it into my dictionary i knew is the right sort of uh, version of the word reason because as a noun it can mean reason truth science natural science texture logic and as a verb it can mean to manage to run tidy to tidy up to handle to pay attention to to put in order uh intrinsic order and i think that kind of sums up the uh the world of zero it's uh very 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 much focused on order and micromanage rationalistic, uh, controlling micromanagement, which you might say has something in common with uh, the 21st century PRC, but taken to a crazy, crazy, crazy extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll speed us along again. Uh, So (laughs) the next miscellaneous item is a piece of music that you would pair the story with. So if you were making a movie, uh, what would be the soundtrack? I do think this could make a decent movie. It felt kind of cinematic to me. Uh, I have one ready, but do you would would do you guys have anything that springs to mind?
1: Well, I agreed. I agree with yours. Um, the the porcupine tree. Um, I was thinking just vaguely of prog metal as a genre, like anything very like uh, kind of mathy and futury sounding, like Polyphia or Animals as Leaders. If you want to get heavy, um, with animals it, Animals as but... Leaders is good. Yeah, prog, just prog metal, the new stuff. Heavy instrumentals.
0: Brent, do you, does anything spring to mind for you?
2: I don't think I had a good one on this. Cody's our musical, our musical expert, um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll 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 let that one stand.
0: Okay, I think Animals as Leaders is good because it's kind of well, I've only listened to the first album, but it's very technically impressive. But it feels kind of I don't know if dry is the right word, but it doesn't conjure big aesthetic visions in my head. And I feel like maybe another reason I might not give the Hugo to this book is. It was hard for me to work out what the aesthetic appearance of the world of Zero would be, apart from kinda of bland. Like it didn't seem like it would be have cool cyberpunk neon lighting. Hmm. It didn't seem like it was gonna look like a Soviet propaganda painting or a Nazi rally. Everything seemed very blank. And I think technical you know, techie techie prog metal can have that quality where it's a little bit not robotic, but um Uh, bloodless
1: yeah it doesn't have as much of an emotional quality without lyrics
0: right yeah my choice is a little bit more uh bloody or weepy it's uh way the track way out of here from an album that would fit the whole thing basically um fear of a blank planet by porcupine tree and i only thought of this because cody before we hit record you suggested prog metal and this is my favorite prog metal rock band uh and they were they were the forefront of my mind recently because Kaiser Kuo, who's the host of the Cynical podcast is a big fan of these guys and he mentioned in the most recent episode they've got a new album coming out. But Way, way Out of Here is the track uh, in this concept album about looking for a way out. I guess *Fear of a Blank Planet* is about kind of about the third industrial revolution. It's about depressed teenagers in in the UK, basically who are um, not paying attention to school, addicted to, I guess, not their smartphones but their mobile phones, their Xboxes, TV, pills. Uh, they're depressed, and yeah, they're they're looking for any kind of way out, and, I, um, and that this, that's what this track is about. And although it's way out of here it probably would mean in terms of the concept album like getting on the bus out of your shitty northern suburban town, but it does feel like in the emotional uh, level like some some kind of an escape from a dystopian society. So mm. that's why I have picked that one. Um, I had a bonus question, so I snipped these out and put them on the show's Patreon. I think we've kind of already talked about this, but the question is, how real is the dystopia? Like, how much of a threat as a possible future do you think this could be? What do you guys think?
2: Cool. What else? All right, well, anything else you should talk about? Yeah, what else we got? Uh,
0: yeah, the further reading questions. Uh, yes, if re- if if listeners want more like this book, where would you send them? Um, you're fired if you say 1984.
1: <laughs> Well, what else do you say? I mean, <laughs> other popular, other dystopian stuff. Um, Handmaid's Tale, Brave New World, um, Machine Stops. We just did an audiobook recording of that, um, on our podcast. Uh, we did like a cast audiobook recording, um, the EM Forrester. Yeah, book. full
2: cast. It was fun. And it's, yeah, very dystopian future. The committee is in charge. Sort of the committee, sort of the machine. Anyway. But yeah, I mean, this is just like, feels like the, the, it's that era for sure. So, 1984, I'm, I'll say it.
1: <laughs> You're fired. We've said it, we've said it a few times. I can't believe you haven't read it. You really should, Angus.
2: It's so good. It's like mm, there's yeah. a reason. It's the most popular sci-fi book of all time by like quite a margin. If you look on mm. Goodreads, like, and it's for a good reason. That book is. Yeah, it's the the writing's so incredible
1: too. Definitely read it. It's easy.
2: It's
0: it's quick. Okay, well, I will I will ping pong back then uh, with another Orwell recommendation: homage to Catalonia, just because it's awesome that's that's a lovely one but uh, being more serious I have I, I guess I must have read a, f- a fair number of sci-fi dystopias but I'll just reiterate if, if anyone's not read anyone listening to the pods not read folding Beijing it's fab I'm gonna go read it right now you can read it online for free at uncanny magazines website so if you just google folding Beijing that should be like the top or the second result and it's a it's um it's a novel. Et. I don't know what the standard word kind of a novel it is, but it's like a long short story. So it won't be over in a blink, but you could read it in a day, easy peasy. Nice, lovely. And the final question: What are you guys reading just now?
1: Well,
2: we are. I just started. Uh... Go ahead. Okay, oh, go, go, ahead. Ahead.
1: go ahead. Cody. All right. <laughs> All right. um Thank you uh, for being the judge, so Angus. You needed the um, authoritarian <laughs> leader to step yeah, in for exactly. you. Yeah. Um, exactly. We are trying to read all of the Hugo nominees for uh, this year so we can talk about them before the Hugo is announced. Um, I have read everyone except I am working on right now uh, The Galaxy and the Ground Within by Becky Chambers, um, who's kind of described as like a hope punk author. Um, you know it's it's uh, very sci-fi, lots of aliens, but um, like good 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 vibes, good feelings, not it's very positive. And then Brent, you're working on you have one more left too, right? I'm doing Project
2: Hail Mary. Yeah, um, that's my, my the last one on my list to get through all the the Hugo's for this year. So yeah, then we can we can sort of do our ranking and talk about who we think we should win. There's a couple there's a couple books that I've really really liked that I think are, will be fun this year. So anyway, we don't need to talk about that now. But yeah, that's where I'm in. I'm in Andy Weir.
0: Okay, and I'm reading, funnily enough, some Chinese sci-fi. Sort of. It's AI 2041 by Chen Chiu Fan and Kai Fu Fuwei. Have you guys come across this one at all? No, right. Have you come across Waste Tide Chen fans debut novel? No, that's I haven't heard of. Ev- it's available to read in English. Um, so he, the. Uh, let me see. I think Kai Fu Li is from Taiwan actually, but works in Beijing in AI companies, uh, and he's re- he's written. A, he's got a book out called AI Superpowers, which is comparing AI in the PRC and in the US. Chen Shuofan is. A straight up sci fi writer who's got a lot of stuff translated to English you can read. He's from uh, Guangdong province in China. And AI 2041 is a collaboration by them both, where each chapter starts with a short story by Chen Xiu Fan that looks at a, 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 the, this, the premise of the story is something to do with a likely AI technology that will be in place by 2041. And then Kai Fu Li follows up each of those stories with his analysis on or an explanation of that technology and to me it's sort of relevant to zero because one of its, a very easy way to criticize it, is that it imports a lot of sort of optimistic, um, I'm going to say the word again, neoliberal um, business mindset to what technology is going to do for our society while sort of paying lip service to but ignoring a lot of the problems and contradictions and scary possibilities and failures it could face. So it's very, I don't know, like I've only recently moved to a trade magazine where business is the, is framed as the thing that's wonderful and it's gonna change the world. Uh, but it is sort of weird to see sci-fi fiction sci-fi, which to me is supposed to be a vehicle for criticism in in my English undergrad humanities brain mind, sort of just sort of um flying the flag almost for these new technologies. Although to count to, to balance that complaint, I would say the stories are The stories are dramas, so they often do point at frightening or strange things about the technologies, but it does feel like a weird blend. So that's my criticism, but the upside is it's like no other book you'll ever read, I think. I can't think of any other book that's taken this approach. And it is quite interesting to see what this guy Kaifu Lee reckons is within the realms of possibility within our lifetimes. I guess we'll find out if he's right. That's another upside of the book. We'll have a payoff <laughs> in 2041. We can find out if he's a genius or a charlatan.
2: Yeah, putting an actual date in your book is a bold, uh, always a bold strategy, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. so it's so true. I, I also have one other quick one, which is um, if watching something, uh, the show Severance on Apple Plus, um, mm. which I just finished and is amazing there's uh, a lot of similarity with zero, especially in like the work stuff, but it's like one of the best sci-fi shows I've ever seen in the writing and everything's incredible about it. It's a perfect show. Go watch it. Mm. That's on my list. That one.
2: Oh, it should be. I know I should,
0: I know, I know you have to go soon, Brent, but you've used You've the word severance has appeared and we're talking about Chinese lit. Have you guys heard of a novel by a Chinese American author called Ling Ma, also called severance? Have not. Yeah, that is Mental. So she wrote that um, I guess a year or two before the pandemic, I think 2018, so before coronavirus had showed up in Wuhan. And it is about a plague, a fungal, admittedly a fungal plague, not a virus, that emerges from China, spreads across the world, and it's from the perspective of this Chinese-American Office worker who's in a publishing company in New York. So you see the uh, from the office window she's in, you see the arrival of this plague in New York and how society reacts to it. And then the other half is the post-apocalyptic world, which obviously we don't live in, but it is really eerie from things like lockdown, virtual working, uh, mm. and also societal reactions like partying in the face of death it's very
1: strange that that book came out a year or two before the pandemic kind of like station 11 i don't know about station 11 similar similar thing i'll tell you about it after yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) okay the the virus starts in in central asia not china but yeah okay (laughs) the the damn kazakhstanis did it (laughs) very close the georgians
0: the georgians (laughs) all right okay um yeah i'd actually don't read that much uh diaspora um writing from the Chinese diaspora because it's it's if it's written in English first can't do it on the podcast mm. so yeah from a rationalistic point of view it's a waste of my time right
1: <laughs> right we're, we're in a similar uh <laughs> we understand the rationalism because a uh, similar deal it's like we're constantly reading I don't even watch that much tv or movies anymore it's just like all reading all the time and specifically what we're covering <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: this is why I love short stories and novellas yeah that's one episode. And a novel is just one episode so rationally why am i why
2: would i ever do <laughs> just do some or ten-chan. you could read the 1400 pages of the mars trilogy and do one episode <laughs> all right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh boy
0: oh kim okay cool all right i think that's all for me uh at least i have no more questions to really you, you 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 fellows with is there anything we've not said yet that you'd like to say
2: no, I think we've hit it all. This was really fun. Thank you so much for, for having us on. This was great to, to talk about something new, learned a lot. It was great to sort of hear hear your perspective on things. And um, yeah, it's just a great experience. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Thank you very much for coming on.
1: Yeah, you opened a world to us. Um, and I'm excited to check out a lot of these recommendations and starting start getting into it. Um, and we are excited to have you as a guest on the Huguenots at some point soon in the future.
0: I'd, I'd like that very much, and I would like to learn more about the Hugos, if only because it has been so bound up with the arrival of Chinese sci-fi in the English uh, book reading world. Like It's brought up a lot, so for that reason alone, I'd, I'd love to be educated a bit more. Awesome, for sure. On that note, I guess I'll say zai Jian, which is Mandarin for goodbye.
2: I'll say adios, which is (laughs) California What was
0: Californian for goodbye? (laughs)
2: Uh, Adios Spanish Adios. Yeah, (laughs) Californian, right
0: Alright, it's over That's it, that's your lot Thank you again, Hugo Knott's, for coming on That was, as I said in the intro Really pretty good By the show standards, I think I hope you listeners enjoyed it too I'll just end the show on the plugs First thing I'll say is if you didn't know, every single episode I make gets its own artwork that I also make. It's effectively just a thumbnail to slap onto the YouTube uploads but I also uh, slap them on to the podcast episodes on the main site. So if you just go to the show's homepage trutrafic.podbean.com you can see all the beautiful artworks there and of course uh, all the other goodies that I put up on there. So yeah, I I know what I'm like. I rarely go to podcasts' homepages, unless they're my one favourite show in the world. But yeah, there's a, there is a lot of good stuff on the Trisha Vic homepage, so consider having a nosy. You'll find links straight to it in the show notes. Uh, besides that, if you've got feedback on anything you've heard in any of the episodes, whether you want to add to something we said, you want to just clap and applaud <laughs> and tell us how wonderful we are, you can do that. But um, also, if you've caught something that's not quite right, then I am not a person who gets mad when people point these things out. I like to learn. I'm, as I've said on the show, not an expert. So all of that is welcome. A uh, good place is to do that. Would be social media. Uh, I've got my own Twitter account you can reach out to, at AngusLikesWords, and the show has its own Instagram, at Church T-R-C-H-F-I-C. We also have a Discord as well, that I'm hoping to one day turn into a bustling place of discussion. As it stands, it's quite quiet, but it is a way to, if you want to pose a question and have other fans of the show uh, catch it before I do, potentially, then the Discord is a good place for that. So I think I'll just round it off there. I'll just, actually, no, one more thing, sorry, the show's Patreon, uh, yeah, there's a, I, I have a stream of bonus shows queued up. I'm going to be producing more pretty soon. There are dozen upon dozen upon dozen of uh, bonus episodes already up there. It's mostly me solo talking either more about books covered on the show or books I that don't quite qualify for the show. So like a, a non-fiction, for example, any China-related non-fiction uh, I read, I read, get around to or immediately make a solo sort of rambling (laughs) uh, bonus waffle. So yeah, um, that's that. I guess I'll now just say the very best thing you can do for the show, you may well know by now, it's to spread the word. Uh, Tell your friend, tell your teacher, tell your boss, uh, you know, the guy that supervises your actually useless role in the computer-based authoritarian regime. Tell him Tell the guy you who you've joined the resistance with, but actually he's a, a plant agent there to monitor the resistance. Make sure you tell him everything you're doing because he wants to know he's got to he's got to fill in his reports. So on that uh, hopefully pleasingly sinister note, Sai Jian.